let me tell you what I'm going to do for you today is um, my, my subspecialty in emergency medicine is hyperbaric and understeam medicine. And uh, I started doing this in, um, yeah. uh, I, I finished my residency at, at Harbor UCLA in 1991. I practiced emergency medicine here in Orange County uh, starting uh, uh, after that. Uh, I got interested in hyperbaric medicine in, in uh, way back in the early 90s. Uh, one of the hospitals I was working at, which was Western Medical Center, happened to have a hyperbaric chamber, uh, a monoplace one. I'll show you, I'll talk about that a little bit, what those are. Um, and it turned out that really none of the docs knew what to do with it. And at the time, I was just, I liked to scuba dive. And somebody uh, suggested to me maybe I'd learn a little bit more about it. So I went and took a, a couple of courses and, and kind of away we went. At the same time, I used to do a lot of things back then um, when I was younger and had more energy, like you. Um, I was a, a part-time uh, attendant here. I used to work some of the uh, shifts in the, in the ER, and I really enjoyed working with the residents and, and, the, and the medical students then. And actually, being here today sort of makes me miss that a little bit. Um, but anyhow, sort of by accident, I started this um, hyperbaric program. Sometimes in your career, you'll find out that you don't exactly know where you're going or why you're going there. But when opportunities present themselves to you, you at least you know find out what, what it's about. So I started working with hyperbaric chambers at Western Med way back in 1994, and uh, started learning a lot and seeing things that I never actually got, you know, would see in the ER. I had follow-up with patients and was dealing with some new things that were interesting. And a few years later, the hospital came to me and said, well, why don't we start a wound care center to go with the hyperbaric, because most of the patients we were seeing had different kinds of wounds. So we did that, and it got very, very busy, and I was practicing emergency medicine, and wound care, and hyperbaric medicine. And then in the early part of the, of, of the 2000s, uh, some things changed at the hospital, and I decided, well, why can't I do this on my own? So uh, I set out and, uh, and opened a freestanding uh, uh, practice, which is kind of unusual for it. That's why, not why people go into emergency medicine, right? Um, and I've been doing that ever since. So that, that's kind of where I came from. Way back in the time when I was hospital-based, I used to treat a lot of patients with carbon monoxide. Um, there were not very many, there still aren't very many hyperbaric chambers in Orange County. And we sort of became the, um, the ref I'll, I'll use it nicely, the referral ground for those things. So we used to see a lot of patients with carbon monoxide poisoning and all the different manifestations that get transferred out there. So in the time, I probably saw several dozen and treated them. So I do have some direct experience doing this. So anyhow, that's how I got here. And I'm happy to be here to talk to you today. So let's, what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide this kind of half and half. I'm going to talk about carbon monoxide and poisoning and what you need to know. And then the other half, I'm going to talk about hyperbaric medicine, because I know you guys don't really know much about that. I'm just going to tell you basically what it is. And then I brought a whole bunch of pictures, because uh, I know you're tired. And I'm just going to show you pictures of some of the cases that we deal with in my practice, so that you get a feel for what, what, um, what a hyperbaric doc does, uh, does all day in, in, in practice. So carbon monoxide, you know, the number of people who die, it depends on what you read. When I wrote this talk originally a few years ago, the number was 3,800. I'm sure that's not right. Um, of those. <clears throat> Some of them are accidental. Accidental means, um, you know, means cars, means hibachis in apartments, means uh, uh, byproducts of chemical solvents, means um, uh, close space fires. The other ones are, are a lot of them are due to suicide. The most common mechanism is to take a you know a car and run a hose into it. But the catalytic converters have sort of made that difficult because the emissions are so low. So, uh, so we don't see as many of those that are successful. We see those that are, that try. Um, the ones who don't die uh, um, may or may not wind up in an emergency room uh, where you will be called on to evaluate them. Um, when you see these patients, you have to know a few things. One, you have to understand the pathophysiology of carbon monoxide. And it's not just uh, carbon monoxide binds to hemoglobin binds oxygen. There's a lot more to it. We'll go into that. The limits of laboratory testing. Uh, a carbon monoxide level is not as useful as we'd like it to be. Uh, an appreciation of how hyperbaric oxygen plays a role in treating carbon monoxide poisoning and when you would want to call a hyperbaric specialist to treat a patient in a hyperbaric chamber. By the way, when you guys have any questions at all, feel free to interrupt me and be happy to help you. So let's take a, a kind of a typical case and then I'm going to make up a contrasting one. This one's a slam dunk. Uh, uh, you're working in the ER, a uh, patient comes in, paramedics, is altered. Uh, this, this was a real case that I saw once, a 40-year-old female. Uh, found unresponsive in a car, closed garage, hose going to the to the passenger compartment, engine running, pretty clear cut. Uh, they don't know how long she was in there. Uh, there was some alcohol, and there was a note indicating her intent. Uh, 
there was some family, uh, gave past medical history of, of not much, you know, pretty unremarkable. She's not on any medicines. Uh, she has a, a history of some uh, alcohol and drug and tobacco use. She's not working, um, you know, kind of suggests that she's, that she might be a little depressed. So <clears throat> when we examined her, her vital signs, her, her blood pressure is 122 over 58. She's a little tachycardic, a little tachypnic, temperature's normal. She's a little overweight. She's uh, obtundive, not very cooperative. Uh, her uh, uh, head, eyes, ears, nose, and throat are, are pretty normal. She's uh, controlling uh, and protecting her own airway. Uh, neck is normal. Chest, she's uh, has good uh, respiratory effort. Heart, abdomen, extremities, normal. Notice that there's none of the cherry red stuff that you read, that you read about in the book all the time. I've never seen that. I think that I think that those patients are usually pretty, almost dead, so they don't usually get to the ER. It's a late finding from a long exposure, so it's not something you can rely on in any way. But that's what the books always talk about: cherry red and carbon monoxide. Neurologically, she's um, <coughs> she's not too with it. She's resisting us. She doesn't answer our questions or respond to commands. She does move all her extremities, and and if you tweak her, she'll back so those are good signs so what do you think about well you don't want to you know as you, you know you see guys going through differentials brought back memories um, you, you don't want to go right for the money in this because you want to think of the other things that could that could um, you know that could be involved here um, some of the things are you know intoxications maybe she took something else um, besides you know besides carbon monoxide to try and make sure she did the job um, uh, you know maybe somebody set her up maybe maybe she's got a head injury and then somebody stuck her in the car so you always want to be, we're ER guys so we're, and, and women, so we're always suspicious of everything, right? And paranoid. So we're going to think about those things and not just go for the money. Um, initial treatment is going to be just supportive stuff. Uh, in this case, I chose not, not to intubate this woman because she was, she was pretty with it, uh, or with it enough and protecting her airway. And, um, and, and I, I didn't think that it was uh, uh, necessary to manage her problem. Um, you know, the, the standard IV stuff and, and, and labs, trying to get a handle on what's going on. Um, so what testing would you, would you order? So I know this is a resident thing, so throw out, what do you guys want to know? ABG. Good. Anything specific with the ABG? You probably get that automatically, but with the box, carbac to hemoglobin level. Right. Uh, what else? CMP, Right, and Tylenol. Right. Just make sure. Uh, what else? Blood alcohol? Right. Chest x ray? Pardon? Good. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, good idea. Because you didn't know if somebody would whack her in the head and then stuck her in the car and try to make it look like something, right? What else? Yeah, good idea. Okay. All right. And, and then the trick question here is what is there, is there a test that's 100% sensitive and specific for carbon monoxide testing that just makes us. Anybody? Carboxyhemoglobin level? Does that do it for you? Um, I would think we'd definitely lead you in the right direction. Okay, what if it's what if the carboxyhemoglobin level is pretty pretty low? Happy? Send her home. <laughs> Anybody? All right, we'll get we'll get back to that. Okay, so this is what we got. Pretty much, you guys ordered what I ordered. Uh, blood count, no problem. Uh, chemistry, pretty good. Um, CK is, is good, aspirin, Tylenol negative, urine tox negative, alcohol, she's got a little going on there, she's not pregnant, carboxyhemoglobin 31.4%, normal is pretty, you know, pretty close to, you know, less than five, zero, depending if they're a smoker, chest x-ray, ABG, it looks pretty good. Um, uh, notice that it's interesting that her carboxyhemoglobin is 31%, but her um, saturation is reading 100%. So you know that 31.4% that of her hemoglobin molecules are, are um, in close, proximity to carboxyhemoglobin ones, but the ABG still thinks it's oxygen. And so will the pulse oxygen. Um, and her PO2 looks looks pretty good, but remember that those hemoglobins are, are being eaten up by, by, uh, by carbon monoxide molecules. Uh, EKG is just, um, probably should have been a little tachycardic, but nothing exciting. And we did CT her head to make sure that somebody didn't, didn't whack her. Um, so the, here's the thing, once you've got this all, all plugged in and you've got all your labs and stuff, so there's some questions you need to start asking yourself. What is, first of all, does this patient need hyperbaric oxygen treatment? The second question is, um, uh, uh, what would be the, the um, obviously what are the indications? Um, 
Is there a protocol for this? I guess you don't need to worry about that unless you're the hyperbaric doctor. And what's the reason that you want to treat? What does it do, the hyperbaric uh, the treatment, to, to, to help this patient? And then after you provide the treatment, is how, how do you reevaluate to make sure that this patient is indeed better? So those are some of the things we're going to talk about. So in, in general, carbon monoxide, you guys probably all know this, is colorless, odorless, tasteless. It's kind of an insidious uh, uh, toxin because a lot of times the patients don't know, uh, unless they've done it on purpose, they don't know if they're being exposed to it. Uh, most often it's, it's a source of, or it's a product of incomplete uh, uh, combustion in a fire, auto exhaust, or in inadequate venting uh, while cooking or heating. I, I saw a case on, on a Christmas many years ago where a whole family was, uh, was keeping either cooking or keeping their apartment warm here in Santa Ana with the hibachi, and, and we treated the whole family on a weekend. Um, carbon monoxide is also, it's a metabolic byproduct of a chemical called dichloromethane, which is a, a solvent that's used in, in paints, and when, it's, when that's ingested or inhaled, it's converted metabolically to carbon monoxide. So that's, a, that's another kind of trick, and that's probably a, a, a good thing at some point might pop up somewhere. Um, so in general, any patient that comes to your ED uh, from a closed space fire or suffering from smoke inhalation should be considered to be suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning. And, and you also need to consider it when a whole bunch of people from the same family or workplace present with kind of vague flu symptoms. Um, uh, although it's hard because you can't really, a lot of times flus run in families and you can't get, um, you know, <coughs> it's tricky, but you have to think about it and, and, and consider it. If you see stuff like that, you can always send the fire department out and they can check the, the if you're suspicious of it, they can check the, the um, location where they're at and measure those, measure carbon monoxide in the environment and see if there's a, a source. When you say flu-like symptoms, what exactly is the I'm going to get to the headache, nausea, vague kind of stuff. When I talk about symptomology, I'll, I'll go through that. So carbon monoxide, this is what it does that's, that's bad. One is, is that those carbon monoxide molecules are binding to the hemoglobin and they have a higher affinity for hemoglobin than, than oxygen. So, so the patient doesn't have the reserve and they become hypoxic to some degree. The degree depends on the, the concentration that they're breathing and the, du and the duration. Um, <clears throat> the, the carbon monoxide causes, in the central nervous system, causes uh, changes in the brainstem that, that result in changes in, in blood flow and blood pressure, um, uh, which can lead to uh, cardiovascular blood pressure collapse, and that's usually when the patients become uh, unconscious. It's not because of, of, the, of the hypoxia, it's because of the, it's because of the cardiovascular collapse. Uh, when those patients are pulled from the source of the carbon monoxide and they sort of put oxygen on and start to resuscitate, they reperfuse the area that's been underperfused, and, and those areas can be, can be subject to those, those areas that were underperfused can experience reperfusion tissue injury, uh, just like anywhere else, like in the myocardium or anywhere else. And carbon monoxide also binds to myoglobin. So let's go through that in a little more detail. And it preferentially affects the CNS. It seems to be the major place where its symptom where, where its symptoms happen. Okay. Right. So hypoxia again. I'm going to go over what we said before is that it has a, a binds to hemoglobin about 200 times better than oxygen. Uh, changes the dissociation curve, making the making the hemoglobin hold on to oxygen more, and 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 it deprives cells everywhere of oxygen. So hypoxia is the first problem. The changes in the blood pressure is is that the, the carbon dioxide directly causes vasodilation. Um, which initially causes increased blood flow, but as you get more vasodilation, you get uh, hemodynamic collapse and, and, and underperfusion of those areas. Um, uh, and that's what leads to the death in these patients. It's not the hypoxia, it's the cardiovascular collapse, or hemodynamic collapse. Um, and again, we talked about reperfusion injury when the patient's removed from the source and you start to resuscitate them, you're putting blood back into those areas, and those areas are then vulnerable to reperfusion tissue injury with neutrophil adhesion and the inflammatory changes. I guess you guys probably talk about this a lot. This was a new concept back when I was a resident. We talk about this a lot in cardiac stuff, reperfusion injury. Have you heard this term before? Yeah. Okay, it happens a lot when you reperfuse a myocardium. Back in the days when we used, we used to do a lot of um, uh, 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 thrombolytic therapy, I know now everybody goes to the cath lab, but we used to have problems with patients who once we reperfuse them, then we had a whole other host of problems from the post-reperfusion, and that's called reperfusion tissue injury. And the reason that happens is because those, the endothelium is irritated from the hypoxia, and then white cells start to stick and cause inflammation, and then it causes a whole host of problems, even after the carbon monoxide is gone. Okay, directly, they, what they do is they release these oxygen-derived free radicals that demyelinate axons, and that's what leads to the long-term brain injury in, in carbon monoxide poisoning. 
Uh, carbon monoxide also binds to myoglobin and it interferes with, um, with oxygen delivery to the mitochondria uh, and, and affects um, uh, oxidative uh, phosphorylation and energy release. So the, the, carbon, the, the central nervous system toxicity results from the direct uh, ischemia from the, from the um, uh, lack of oxygen in the, in the blood, the reduction of cerebral blood flow, and then the, and then the uh, direct uh, damage to the neurons by the reperfusion injury in carbon monoxide, which leads to, leads to demyelinization over time. Okay, any questions so far? All right. Um, the other thing, one of the other things that's important is to realize that, that if you have a woman who's pregnant and exposed to carbon monoxide, that fetal hemoglobin has a greater affinity for carbon monoxide than, than the mom's hemoglobin does. Um, it takes a while to equilibrate, but once it does, the, the fetal uh, uh, carboxyhemoglobin concentration may be greater than the mom's. So it's possible for, for a mother to survive the same exposure that would be, that would be deadly for the, for the fetus. So pregnant women are a special consideration. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about this more in a minute. So here's what you're going to see. That, and the symptomology of, of these patients can be completely varied. Sometimes it's easy. The first one's a slam dunk. The patient's in the car. They've got the, the, the carboxyhemoglobin level. Easy. But what happens is it can be very vague, and it requires a physician who's seeing, these, seeing all kinds of patients, even when they don't come with that label you know, on their head, to be thinking about this as a possibility in different circumstances. So it depends on what the carbon monoxide concentration is in the environment that they're breathing and how long they're exposed to it. And you have acute exposures and chronic exposures over a long time where someone breathes a little carbon monoxide every day in an environment. They work in an auto shop that isn't properly ventilated and they get a little bit every day and they develop these kind of vague ongoing symptoms. And, and if, when they come to you, there's no carbon monoxide in the blood. So how do you know? You, you kind of have to be, it, it takes a lot of suspicion to kind of get to that point. So. If the carboxyhemoglobin concentration is less than 10%, they may have just minimal uh, uh, symptoms. You know, they, they could just be you know, headache, nausea, vomiting, a little lethargic. That's all. It could be very subtle. And it, can, and it can sort of cross over with things that you might consider to be a viral syndrome. That's why when you see the clusters of people, that you have to kind of think about this. Um, at, at the higher levels, you get headaches, you get um, um, weakness, visual changes, dizzy and nausea, vomiting. Again, sounds like the flu. 40 to 50 percent uh, syncope, tachycardia, tachypnea, greater than 50 and 60 percent, you're in pretty bad shape. And those patients will usually come from an environment where somebody's going to tell you where they came from, but you still want to think about it. Um, a few things, go ahead. There was just an incident uh, we talked to one of our colleagues in Ireland in a hotel where people had flu-like symptoms. There were even doctors called out to see a couple patients a couple days in a row, and some ended up dying, and then they found out there was a Right, and that happens all. Hey, it happened here in um, Lakewood. I, I used to play ice hockey up there when uh, the Zambonis that they used to um, surface the ice were not were having a problem, and there was they found it was carbon monoxide in the rink. Yeah, it, it, it happens, and those are tough because they don't come in, you know, with the label that what you expect, you know. And they and even if you get a carboxyhemoglobin level, you're you're not going to get it because at the time they walk out of the hotel or the ice rink and come to you, the, it's gone. So you have to you have really have to be suspicious. And the first few doctors missed it. You know, didn't even think about it. Like, oh, you got the flu, you got the flu. And then, and then when a whole bunch of them kept coming, then they finally thought something's going on here. It must be environmental. So as I said, that the, you know, the fire department, when you suspect that, can go out to the source and they have ways of measuring carbon monoxide on the, on the premises and can, can be helpful with that. Um, we've already touched on this, but remember, as soon as the patient leaves the environment, that carboxyhemoglobin level, and the paramedics are going to put oxygen on them. They're out of the environment. By the time they get to you, it might have been here when they started out. By the time they get to you, it's going to be much lower than what the peak was. Or it could be nothing. You know, it could be normal. But that doesn't mean they weren't exposed. So and that's the tricky part about this. And that's the real part that you always have to keep in your brain here. Because this happens. Every ER doc you know, is going to see this eventually. And I've seen it both as an ER doc. As a hyperbaric doc, they would get to me with the label on them. But I've, saw, I've seen it in the ER, too. Uh, in this area, Orange County. Um, so a few other things to think about is chest pain and other symptoms that suggest cardiac ischemia uh, uh, can uh, present in patients with, who have pre-existing coronary artery disease because you're creating a relative hy hypoxia in these patients that are already compromised. And then children can be more sensitive to the same uh, levels of carbon monoxide around them as adults and complain of things that sound like flu, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Uh, but it's at greater levels can be can uh, have uh, syncopal episodes or, or become lethargic. Physical findings. 
uh, again, depend on the concentration and the duration, tachycardia, tachypnea. Um, obviously, if you have smoke or, or inhalation gas uh, history, then uh, those are sort of easy because you're always going to check that and think about it. Uh, in more severe cases, you can show retinal hemorrhage, papilledema, blindness, visual field defects, uh, uh, labyrinth or vestibular nerve damage uh, causing uh, balance problems, nystagmus, hearing loss, or tinnitus, rhabdomyolysis when there's a lot of uh, uh, muscle damage causing renal failure. The cherry red skin and mucous membranes in the book, almost, I, I've never seen that. It's very rare and only in very, very severe cases. So you can't rely on they, either the presence of that to make the diagnosis or the absence of it to exclude the diagnosis of carbon monoxide poisoning. Although you may see that on a, you know, a test somewhere, it, in reality, you're probably not gonna see that with these patients. What's the cause of it, you know, the red? It's a good question, I don't know for sure. All right, somebody asked me the, about the nervous system. It is the major target of, of carbon monoxide and can cause all kinds of dysfunctions. The, at the mild exposures, uh, the, they can be overlooked as um, with just a simple neurologic screening that we do in the ER, which is, you know, what day is it, you know, where are you, all that stuff. Those patients may be able to answer those questions, but, but that kind of screening will not exclude milder um, nervous system dysfunction for carbon monoxide. Um, <coughs> At, at higher levels, causes altered mental status, seizures, memory loss, uh, all kinds of other problems. Um, but those patients are usually easier. It's the subtle ones that I want to get across to you that are not as easy and you have to think about all the time. This is another issue with carbon monoxide. It's called delayed neuropsychiatric presentation. It's defined as a late deterioration in neurologic function, usually following an initial lapse of consciousness to carbon monoxide exposure. Now remember, these are the patients that have cardiovascular blood pressure loss and cardiovascular collapse. And when they're brought out of the environment, it's restored. They're the ones that have the neurologic injury and they're because of reperfusion syndrome. Uh, and these are the patients that have the, the delayed demyelinization and then the subtle or, or more severe, depending on the extent uh, of brain injury with time as the, as the, as the neurons lose their, lose their myelin and, and, and don't function the way they're supposed to. So th these patients come back days or weeks later and say, I'm having all these symptoms and I don't know why, and if you take a really good history, you look back and say, well, maybe they, something happened or there are chronic carbon monoxide exposure. Every, I had a woman like this that I treated in my practice who worked in a, 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 an auto place, and every day there was a little bit of carbon monoxide there, probably for months, and she didn't know it. And now she had all these weird neurologic symptoms. Um, these patients also respond to hyperbaric treatment, even at the late, even at the late stages. So to make the diagnosis, as I kind of alluded, you have to be very, very suspicious all the time because there's no test that can always rule it out. And, and the symptoms are very, can be, especially at lower and chronic levels, can be very nonspecific. So you have to always kind of have your, your, your antennas up for this stuff. Um, the other thing is, is that you can't correlate the severity of the exposure with the carboxyhemoglobin level. If I put you in a room for a few minutes with a lot of carboxyhemoglobin or a lot of carbon monoxide, you're going to come out with a pretty high level, but the duration is short. Chances are you could just walk away from that, no problem. Lower level, long time, more problems. And the blood level doesn't help you at all. So with the carboxyhemoglobin analysis on the blood, uh, you can take it from arterial venous, it doesn't matter, the hemoglobin's the same. It, it measures the number of binding sites that are occupied by carbon monoxide only at the time that the sample's drawn. It doesn't tell you what it was an hour ago when they were coming out of the building. It doesn't provide any information about how much is hiding in the myoglobin or in the central nervous system or what the level was at its peak. It's only an it only tells you that the patient's been exposed to carbon monoxide, but the lack of a carboxy of an abnormal carboxyhemoglobin level doesn't tell you that the patient wasn't exposed. So it's very tricky. So here's an, 38 patients in a little study, um, 18 where they were all exposed to carbon monoxide. 18 had levels greater than 41. 11. 21 to 40, and 9 had levels less than 20%. So it's all different depending on the patient. And that, that again, that makes us trickier. Uh, so anytime, I'm sorry, anytime you get a patient with elevated uh, levels, you have to assume that it was a lot higher. It was probably higher before it got to you. But what, how does that help? How does, I'm going to throw it back at you. Does that, does that help you? I mean, if they're clinically better, not really. It doesn't really help you because you don't know if it was a chronic exposure, short exposure what it was. You don't know what the tissue load is. So if you have a blood gas, uh, arterial venous, and it gives you an, an elevated carboxyhemoglobin level, you don't know when it happened. It's a, it, this is sort of like, you know, when a patient comes in with chest pain, doesn't matter what the enzymes are, doesn't matter what the EKG shows. If the story is good, then you've got to go with the story. 
with this, if the, if, if, if the EKG and the enzymes are positive, no problem. But if they're not positive, then what do you do? You know, so in a way, it's a little analogous. You, you, you tend to think, if I get the level and the level's negative, then there's no, carb, no carboxyhemoglobin, there's no problem. But that's not true, you still have to think past that. Is there any, uh, has anyone ever looked at comparing, like get an arterial sample, venous sample, and then you can kind of deduce if there's any left in the tissue from that? Would they be different at the same exact time? There's no reason, I, I, there's no reason I can think of physiologically that it should be different. You're just running, the hemoglobins are running around the circle, they don't care. You know, as they go through the lung, they're going to offload a little bit. So if you took simultaneous measurements, I, I don't think it would matter. Clinically, I don't think it would matter. So remember, pulse oximetry doesn't help you. Um, you know, 50% carbon monoxide, 50% oxygen, still 100% on the sensor. Uh, EKG doesn't help you, uh, and we're probably not going to get an EEG. And then we we'll talk about psychometric testing in a minute. Uh, okay, so let's talk about carbon, uh, carbon monoxide and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. This is one of the things that impressed me, and I don't know why, it's just because the numbers were so big when I first got involved in this field. If you look at your, remember your alveolar gas equation, which is what determines the, the partial pressure of, ox, of oxygen in the alveolus, not in the, not in the arteries or the capillaries, but is the, is the FiO2 times the um, partial pressure or the atmospheric pressure minus the water part of it and then the CO2 over the respiratory quotient. In hyperbaric conditions, if you're putting patient 100% oxygen, three atmospheres of pressure, which is 2280 millimeters of mercury, CO2 and, and, and uh, a partial pressure of water <coughs> the same. Your PaO2, that's is in the alveolus, is, is over 2,000. And even if you adjust, by the time it gets to the, cap the pulmonary capillary and you add a little factor in for, a, for, a, um, for an AA gradient, you've got huge amounts of, of oxygen dissolved in plasma. And that oxygen is what does the, the job of correcting this. These numbers really impress me in hyperbaric that I can get somebody's PaO2. When you put a face mask on, you can only do 760 millimeters of mercury pressure, 100% inefficient. In a hyperbaric chamber, I can put somebody's PaO2 into, into huge numbers, which in which case it's almost like a drug seeking a problem, and, and that's why it's useful. So the exaggerated oxygen levels, it, first they accelerate the rate of carbon, monoc or carbon monoxide dissociation, and you can see the half-life. Uh, if you have a patient with carbon monoxide and you put them on, uh, in their breathing air at, at, at sea level, it takes about five and a half hours for the half-life of carbon monoxide uh, or carboxyhemoglobin. At, at three atmospheres oxygen, that, that half-life goes down to 23 minutes. So it, it helps to eliminate the carbon monoxide off of the myoglobin and off of the hemoglobin. But remember, a lot of it is in the tissues. It's in the brain, and, it, and you've got this reperfusion problems. So what the other thing this does is by putting oxygen into the cells, it, it restores cellular oxidative metabolism in those cytochromes. Um, and then it also calms down those neutrophils that want to stick where you've had reperfusion. So that the neutrophils don't stick, and, and, they, and the process that leads to the chronic brain injury is attenuated. So these are the reasons when you, see, when you do see a patient eventually in your emergency with carbon monoxide, these are what I consider the, the indications that you call your hyperbaric doctor or your hyperbaric chamber and say, hey, I need, I need to send this patient over to you. I need to see the patient. Any patient who's, who's in a coma or had a loss of consciousness, and even if they've recovered, so if they say they were unconscious at the scene, we pulled them out, they're in your ER, they're looking great, that patient had enough carbon monoxide at one point to collapse his, his perfusion to his brain and he became unconscious. That's, that's an indication. A patient with, with uh, uh, chest pain uh, or ischemic changes on the EKG, uh, any, if you get a patient in your ER that has carboxyhemoglobin greater than 25%, they get treated. Now remember that they were probably a lot higher before they ever got to you, unless they, unless they brought the carbon monoxide you know, in a bag with them. Um, any pregnant woman with a, with a symptom or, a, or a, with, with any symptoms related you know, after a carbon monoxide exposure and a, and a, and a, or a carboxyhemoglobin later than, greater than only 15% should get treated to protect the fetus. Remember the fetus? hangs on to carbon monoxide better than the mom does. Um, if you have a patient who doesn't meet these criteria, but you put them on oxygen in your ER, and they still have a headache, and they still feel nauseated after, after a few hours of 100% oxygen, they should get treated. Any patient with a neurologic, it means cognitive or, or, or focal finding, or seizure gets treated. Any patient uh, who returns later on with, with the delayed uh, uh, neuropsychiatric uh, complaints. Psychometric testing sounds complicated, but we used to do this down in our department. It's a little kit, and it, and it, gives, you, um, it gives you a bunch of different silly little tests that the patients have to do. And our techs used to sit down with them and go through these with 
blocks and trails and all kinds of things and they'd score them and at the end we'd get a score and that, that would detect a lot of this subtle kind of neurologic problems. So when, so when we were evaluating a patient, we would do this, uh, this testing and then after a series of treatments, we would do this too. And we wouldn't stop treating until this had stabilized or, be, or normalized and then, we would, and then we would do it later on. And this would detect a lot of the subtle stuff. It's, it's probably something you'll never do, but it's fairly easy to do and this is a way that, that, a, that a doc like me can know how these patients are, are doing. Um, our, our treatment protocol was three atmospheres for 30 minutes, uh, and, then, and then we go down to two and a half atmospheres for 60 minutes, so that's 90 minutes total. We would do it twice or three times a day until the patient's uh, neurologic condition stabilized by the testing that I just described. Um, we would do the testing after each treatment, and then the patients would follow up with us or their primary care or a neurologist in, in a week or so. Uh, we told them to come back if they had any neurological deterioration uh, or other symptoms. Uh, and um, Hopefully they did. So just a couple of things. I'm almost finished with the carbon monoxide pores. There is a little controversy about this, just like everything else. And there was an article that was published in 1999 from Australia um, where, they, where they took uh, a bunch of people who, were, uh, uh, who presented with carbon monoxide toxicity, and they randomized them to two groups. They did one group 100% oxygen in a hyperbaric chamber, but they didn't, they didn't compress it. And the other ones got compressed oxygen. We call that sham treatment when you do that. Uh, and what they, what they published was, that, was that, that the patients who got the high concentration oxygen actually did worse than the ones who didn't. And this was a big deal in my field because, uh, because they came out and said, well, well then you shouldn't even treat these people with hyperbaric oxygen because they get worse. And, and it caused a lot, of, a lot of discussion about this. But when, when we looked at this, when you looked at this, and this is my opinion, I recently reread the article. In Australia, apparently a lot of people commit um, or, or use carbon monoxide to commit um, to commit suicide, and a lot of them use drugs with it. I guess that's Australia and the Coriolis effect and all that. Um, so, what, uh, so what happened was, I think that there were a lot of patients that were, when you try and do this testing on them afterwards, when you have drugs, and people who commit suicide tended to be depressed and, and score worse on these on these kinds of tests afterwards. I think that group should have been tweaked out completely and they should have looked at the suicides versus the accidentals to see what happened, and I don't think they did that very well. So the, the American uh, hyperbaric people responded, and a guy named Weaver, who's a big shot in hyperbaric medicine in the United States and the East Coast, did his own study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2002, and his conclusion was that three hyperbaric oxygen treatments within 24 hours after uh, exposure appeared to reduce the risk of cognitive problems six weeks and 12 months after the carbon monoxide poisoning. So from, I haven't heard much about this since. I think the standard of care is if a patient meets those criteria that they should be in a hyperbaric chamber. And the American literature supports that. And I haven't heard much about this Australian article since then, but it did cause an uproar. Did you? Yeah. What did you come up with? Um, pretty much the same thing that the American study was better done. It was done in Utah. <laughs> yeah, a guy named Lynn Weaver did it, who I've heard talk before. And uh, Australian, the Australian study had 46% dropout rate. That was one of the big weaknesses. Their patients disappeared. They couldn't do the neurotoxicity testing. Right. Right. Did you also pick up the part about the, the percentages of the number of patients who were suicides and, and we didn't uh, comment on that. yeah, suicides yeah. and drug yeah. use seem to be a big part of this. Issue here that, sure. That again, I don't know. I have no idea what the ultimate truth in this really is. And what happens? What do I do when I get one of these? I hyperbaric. No question about it. Having said that. The American study, the way they scored these patients was a bit, I won't say it's tricky, but it's its concerning. Because rather than looking at the absolute scores, they average them. And when you look at the average scores, most of them don't even reach statistical significance. But they, when this was brought up, they, they responded by saying that this is how the neurologists do it. And so they justified their scoring system by this is the practice of, of the neurologists. Whether in fact, though, that that's valid for this kind of test, I think is, is debatable. And so some of the way they score these neurologic outcomes, the differences in the two groups for each individual group oftentimes do not reach statistical significance. Although they report them as they did because of the way the neurologists would view these types of data. Now, are the neurologists right? Maybe, maybe not, I don't know. So it's still, um, this is not a done deal, and, and I don't think anybody knows for sure what's going on. Um, I would be surprised that HBO would do damage. Um, it might, but it, it seems probably that at best it probably doesn't do much. But um, this, this kind of debate will be going on, and we haven't heard the end of this. 
And Weaver is a very well respected guy in the US, and so his opinion is probably going to carry more weight than somebody in this human nature from another country. But I just wanted to make sure that everybody understands that this is, this is not a done deal. And there is, even among people that really understand this, and I'm not one of them, um, that these issues about the way these things are scored and the way they're valued are, are hotly debated. Right, I agree. That's why I, that's why I decided to throw this in because I wanted you to know it's not it's not a slam dunk and it's not you know it may not be over. One of the issues that comes up in hyperbaric therapy that we're we're always uh, that nobody's ever settled is that when you when you have an inflammatory process going on and you put a lot of oxygen on it, you, you're providing substrate for for the one thing that causes damage, which is oxygen derived free radicals. When you get an oxygen that pushes that reaction that direction, so it's possible. That, that, that can sometimes cause harm, and it's related to something called oxygen toxicity, which is a whole other subject that we see sometimes. So, so it is, you know, Dr. completely right. It's not, this is not settled, but for the time being, I think that the standard of care here is if you see a patient who meets these criteria, that you should consult with a, with a hyperbaric uh, a specialist. Yes, sir? Is the inflammatory response that you're concerned about that causes damage? Has anyone thought about using hyperbaric oxygen with an anti-inflammatory? Um, you, you know, it would be analogous to reperfusion injury and myocardial stuff. What do the cardiologists do now? Aspirin? Oh, yeah. Maybe we could give an aspirin when we do it. But what you're talking about, well, they're talking about platelet sticking. We're talking about neutrophil sticking. I don't know if aspirin would stop that, but maybe there's an anti-inflammatory. I mean, it wouldn't hurt. Sure, why not? All right, I'm going to do that next time. All right, good. We're going to publish. All right, so let's go. Let's switch, let's switch gears. Uh, when do you want me to, to stop talking? I got 10 minutes? Did you, do I have till two, or when do you want me to stop? I don't want to abuse uh, my. You know what? Ten, around 10 minutes. Okay, I can zoom in 10 minutes because I know you guys are. are <laughs> I, 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 I used to see it to be short. Okay, because okay, now it's just going to be mostly pictures. I just So I'm switching gears. I just want to tell you a little bit about I may be the only exposure you get to somebody who does, you know, who's practicing this subspecialty. And I just want to tell you a little bit about what I do. Um, and hyperbaric oxygen is, is, as a treatment, is defined as a, it's a therapy where a patient breathes 100% oxygen while inside a, a chamber at a pressure higher than sea level. So there are other things out there. There's, a, there's some therapies where they put a bag on, on, on a leg or something and call it hyperbaric therapy. That's not it. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy works by going in the nose, lungs, and dissolving in plasma, very, very high levels of, of, of oxygen in the plasma. That's where, that's where all the therapeutic benefits come from. And it has to be done in a chamber where the patient is completely enclosed. There are other therapies out there that, that confuse the issue, but that's what it is. We use either single-place chambers, which is why I have two in my office, or multi-place chambers, such as the ones at UCLA and at, and at, a, at a Catalina. It's used as both a primary and an adjunctive treatment for lots of different medical problems besides, um, besides uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. So I know before you guys, somebody said something about Michael Jackson. I wanted to show you a picture of Michael Jackson in his hyperbaric chamber. Um, everybody says, is Michael Jackson going to the chamber? No. Um, so we divide, we divide kind of the medical problems that we treat into what I call established indications. And that means that those that are, there's a group called the Underseen Hyperbaric Medical Society. And they've evaluated a lot of these. And, and what they consider that there's, there's sufficient scientific uh, published information to say that these things are effective and, and work. And this is what they are. Air or gas embolism, which could be from scuba diving, or you're, or you're putting a line in somebody and you shoot a bubble in them accidentally. Uh, carbon monoxide poisoning and, and cyanide poisoning, uh, clostridial um, uh, myonecrosis, crush injuries, compartment syndromes, and other traumatic ischemias, uh, decompression sickness from scuba diving, uh, arterial insufficiencies, central retinal artery occlusions. I've treated most of these. Uh, enhancement of healing and selected problem wounds, especially diabetics, uh, severe anemia, intracranial abscess, especially with anaerobic infections, necrotizing soft tissue infections, chronic uh, non-resolving osteomyelitis, radiation injury is one of my favorite things to treat is patients who have complications of, of uh, therapeutic radiation uh, treatment uh, uh, in usually prostate, breast, or, or, or jaw uh, from cancer treatment. Compromised uh, skin grafts and flaps. I work a lot with plastic surgeons and, and thermal burn injury. I used to work with Grossman Burn when they were at Westmed, and I was there. We used to see all their patients. Um, investigational indications, and I, I'm because I'm a freestanding practice. I do take some of these cases on when I think the patients are, are properly motivated and, and understand what the you know that they're investigational. Traumatic brain injury is a big deal right now, especially with the military. A lot of patients are coming back for or soldiers coming back with blast and traumatic injuries and having uh, brain dysfunction. 
and, and there was a big study that went on in uh, Louisiana where they did, uh, a lot of these guys did 40 treatments and had a lot of improvements. So there's a lot of um, talk right now about traumatic brain injury and hyperbaric oxygen. Uh, chronic stroke and acute, autism, Lyme disease. Uh, uh, treated a couple of patients with uh, aseptic necrosis, femoral head. Uh, I get patients after cosmetic surgery want to heal faster. Uh, sports medicine for recovery after injury, fracture healing, hearing loss, Parkinson's disease. So there's a lot of areas of, uh, of, of interest in hyperbaric oxygen. And this is, the, in general, these are the mechanisms by where it works. Obviously, when the, when the, when the um, PaO2 is huge, you're going to force that oxygen, no matter what, into tissues that may not be getting enough oxygen. In order for something to heal, it has to have a minimum level of oxygen. If you don't have that, it isn't going to heal. So the hyperoxygenation allows fibroblasts and other cells to do their job to heal something that isn't healing. It also causes vasoconstriction, which reduces edema, which is a big issue in a lot of sort of chronic non-resolving problems, but it doesn't compromise oxygenation. It reduces bubble size, which is why we use it to treat, um, to treat um, uh, decompression sickness and, uh, and gas embolism. It inhibits anaerobic bacteria by, by giving them what they don't want. It inactivates clostridial myotoxins. It, it allows white cells to, to eat and kill bacteria better. It causes new blood vessels to grow into areas that are hypoxic, and it, and it slows down the neutrophils in, in, in reperfusion injury. Okay, uh, okay, we're almost to the pictures, which are the fun part. Um, just about what I do, I, I'm kind of, I guess, an anomaly in emergency medicine because I've, I've sort of, I've fled the hospital. Um, and I have a freestanding practice in Santa Ana uh, where what I specialize in is, is problem wounds, and that's pretty much all I do all day. Most of the wounds I see are related to diabetes, pressure, artery insufficiency, vein insufficiency, I see lymphedema, surgical wounds, trauma, burns, radiation, all kinds of stuff. Most of the wounds I see, we heal without hyperbaric treatment. We do all kinds of things. I do artificial grafts, I do compression therapy, I do wound debridements, we do topical things. I work a lot with, with uh, foot guys and, and um, and orthotics and off-weighting for diabetics, so all kinds of interesting things. Um, in my practice, we do hyperbaric oxygen therapy for, for established and some investigational indications, and I also practice scuba diving medicine and treat decompression. I get referrals from Divers Alert Network for decompression, and I'm also the um, dive doctor for the Metropolitan Water District for the, all their divers that dive in, in reservoirs. Uh, I see a lot of patients from my sports chalet and other places for recreational divers who need dive clearance or have had dive problems. Um, okay, I'm just going to run through some pictures and then we'll be done so you can see what I do all day. Um, this is a, a, a middle-aged guy, diabetic, neuropathy, good, good blood flow, got a wound in the, in the middle of his foot, did not get hyperbaric oxygen. We off-weighted it, treated the wound, debrided it, took a few months and it healed up very nicely. Then he, then he did me a favor and came back with a wound on his toe, so these patients are annuities too. Um, this is, a, this is a really interesting, this is a woman who had a revision of a breast, if you look on her, on her left side, on the left one. On the left um, uh, uh, screen, uh, she had a, a, a breast reconstruction with kind of a T incision at the bottom. And, and you can see the nipple started to get ischemic and some of the wound broke down. So we treated her for a few days with hyperbaric treatment. It was looking okay and then her plastic surgeon started to manage the wound and the whole thing went to, went to what you see on the right. She's got this big open yucky wound on her breast and she's obviously panicking because she went in to look better and she didn't. On the top left, you can see after a few weeks of treatment, which is hyperbaric and topical wound care. Whoops, let me get, I brought my pointer for this, let's use it. You can see that this is starting to granulate a little bit. It's nice and, and pink in there. The yellow stuff's going away. This is a few weeks later. You can see that the wound is epithelializing. All the yellow sluffy stuff has gone away and it has a nice granular wound bed. The nipple tissue has kind of survived for the most part. The wound is continuing to epithelialize and granulate. And then a few weeks later, the whole wound closed. No skin graft, no nothing. I did that in my office. And uh, she's going to have a little reconstructive on the nipple, but I think she doesn't want to go back to surgery. She's happy with what mm -hmm. she's got. So this was over a few months in my office. Didn't go to the OR, no skin grafting, no nothing. This was after an implant? She had a revision. She'd had an implant that was removed, new one put in, and then the breast reshaped. So she had like an inverted T incision at the bottom. Her nipple so was lifted up. Still has, still has she still has an implant. The implant never got infected. So we were able to get away with this. Um, this is a guy with diabetes who had a, uh, I think he had infection in IND, big huge wound on his leg, did not want a skin graft, had seen me before for a foot wound. It took me about, about 10 or 12 months 
of compression wrapping to keep the edema down in his leg. He's diabetic and you can see his foot. He's got some of the charcoal changes. His foot is kind of inverting and collapsing, but he also has venous insufficiency and, and edema in the leg, which is really what was keeping this from healing. And what we did was we put uh, various topical things on here and we just compression wrapped his leg every day. And this wound slowly epithelialized and closed. He did not want surgery, did not want a skin graft. And we did the whole thing in the, in the office over, over six months to a year. Um, this is a woman who has scleroderma. Uh, she developed ulcers over, over several of her fingers. And uh, we did uh, hyperbaric therapy and topical wound therapy, debrided it very gently because I didn't want to see the inside of her knuckles. And over several months, she uh, uh, these granulated and, uh, and epithelialized and closed. And we see her occasionally for little recurrence. She still has scleroderma. Again, we did this in the, in the office without any surgeons or other meddlers. Um, it's another case that was referred to me, uh, flame burn to the hand, deep second degree. Um, what I did with her was I got her to elevate the hand, and the, when the edema went down, everything declared itself, and I was able to debride, the, um, debride off the dead skin in the office, and the, the wound, um, uh, the skin cells that were in there started to um, multiply uh, and, 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 and regain, regain an epidermis, and we got a very nice outcome out of this center to hand therapy. Again, we did this without a burn center, did it in the office. Question. Sure. Question. Um, are there certain patients where this treatment is contraindicated, such as COPD or? or yeah, that's a good question. Oh, going back, the lady you just saw, just just to be clear, did not get hyperbaric therapy. Most of the patients you're seeing here, and and in my practice, do not get hyperbaric therapy for their wounds. They don't need it. It's okay. expensive, and there are side effects. So I, I believe my philosophy is is that the least expensive way and safest way to get from point A to point B is the direction I take. So what can go wrong? I've treated a lot of patients with obstructive lung disease. The book says it can hurt them. It never does because we compress very, very slowly, control the rate of compression. But I did refuse a very severe COPD lady about a year ago because I, she just was, was too far out on the edge and I don't have the ability to resuscitate someone in my, in my, in my emergency room, in my office, and I, I didn't want to go there with her. Um, so I turned her down. But the things that happen, have got to clear your ears, Gotta clear your lungs, so obstructive lung disease. Oxygen toxicity can cause a seizure. Usually predictable happens unpredictably <coughs> sometimes. I've had a few in the office, but you deal with the seizure. As soon as you get them out of the environment, they wake up and then what happens, send them home. Um, so there are a few contraindications and things to look out for. Um, this is a guy who was referred to me from the trauma center at, at uh, WestMed, shotgun. He had some internal injury, those were taken care of, and um, uh, we just nursed these until they epithelialized and closed. Again, this all outpatient. These epithelialized without skin grafting or anything. We did it in the office. Uh, it's a pressure sore. Sorry, the pictures aren't good. Over the coccyx, over a few months with wound care and off waiting, it epithelialized and granulated. Off waiting just means don't sit on your butt. Don't sit on your butt. Sleep on your side. This was a mobile guy. It's harder when they're not mobile and can't turn. But then we know a lot about, um, a lot of what I do has to do with pressure relief surfaces and, and, um, and, and trying to minimize and redistribute pressure is a big part of what I do. This guy was real sick in the hospital when he got this wound, but when he got to me, he, he had recovered um, and, uh, and he was able to manage his, you know, his weight and, and, and keep pressure off of that thing and it healed over a few months. Um, this, is a, this is one of my, this is a woman who had a mastectomy and radiation. The wound became infected, or it became infected many years later. So we call it. It's a, so it's an infected wound in a delay in an area we call it delayed radiation injury, where the tissue becomes fibrotic and, and ischemic. And and she had this wound for a long time. We with her, she got about 40 hyperbaric oxygen treatments along with wound care. So when this wound declared itself, you can see that if you look at the difference here, if you look at the tissue around here, it's softer. And even though the wound's bigger, it's starting to granulate that red, healthy stuff. Then the white stuff here is skin growing across the top of it. She did not want surgery, did not want a skin graft, just wanted us to get rid of this thing. So this again took months, but what happened was is that once we made the wound healing healthy and got oxygen into it, the little epithelial cells just started marching across and closed the darn thing. She was didn't want a revision, she's happy, went on with her life. Um, lady with renal failure. Uh, was a Kaiser patient who wasn't getting what she thought was good care at Kaiser and found me on the internet. And she has got this wound on the back of her leg. She's got, uh, just, she's got renal failure. And if you look at the leg, the, the contours of it, it's just a swollen leg. And I don't know why Kaiser didn't get this, but uh, what we did with her was just topical wound care, a little debridement and compression wrapping. And as you can see, this wound, all the dead stuff, the black stuff's gone. We've got granulation starting, it's starting to epithelialize. A few months later, went to that and closed. 
I think she got a few hyperbaric treatments in there too, but I, I don't know. You know, when you compress it, you don't need to. It does the same thing. Most patients will not comply with keeping your leg up all day. Say compression. Compression. I use no. I use a kit called a, a three flex or a pro four kit that has three layers. It has cotton, gauze, and then coban, and then we modify that for patient comfort. It's a fairly simple procedure. It, in the old days, they used to do Una boots all the time, but Una boots have no compression, and zinc oxide doesn't do anything. So it's sort of grown out of the Una boot idea, where we're actually compressing, and I do tons of compression because and the compression is just for the purpose of reducing the anemia. Exactly, because I have a phrase for it. I call it congestive wound failure. You guys on the congestive heart failure? You heard of that? What happens in congestive heart failure? Lung full of water, oxygen doesn't go across it. Tissues full of water, what happens? No oxygen. Wound, wound, wound suffocates. So when I compress it, get the swelling out, oxygen gets in the wound, wound heals. And you don't get uh, sort of reactive edema distal, distal to it? No, I wrap all the way down to the foot. I you have to wrap distal. Yeah, and it's a, it's a little tricky, but we, we do, uh, you know, I do, um, let me scare you. I do, t I do a thousand of these wraps a, a month in my office uh, on these patients. I see this over and over again, lower extremity wounds don't heal because of swelling. And I also do, we also prescribe and dispense compression socks and all kinds of compression devices to get rid of the edema. And most docs know that when you see this in the lung, it's congestive heart failure. But I call this congestive wound failure. And that's why her wound, look, it's dying. There's no oxygen, the black, that's all it is. Um, so lady, I saw a couple of years ago, a nice older lady, who had um, a basal cell cancer removed from her leg and, uh, and, and subsequently got this wound that wouldn't heal. She went up to Long Beach and, they, and she'd had radiation therapy, which is what they thought it was, and they did a whole bunch of hyperbaric treatments on her. It still didn't heal. If you look at this leg, you see it's kind of like a funnel. It's swollen, and it's got this dark, a little dark congested and a little bit of venous stasis stuff. So we did what we did with the rest of them. She'd already had the hyperbaric treatment, so I compressed her to cure the wound, and it started <coughs> to granulate in. Uh, epithelialized and closed. This took about nine months. Um, when you put those compressions on in the office, how often do you have to change them? Uh, my standard is twice a week. They come so like, not every day. Okay. No, but if I have a real drainy or yucky wounds, which I do have sometimes three times a week, I've had patients where we do them every day. Um, but the alternative is, look, in a setting like I'm, and this is a whole other talk, it's about cost effectiveness and medical marketplace. To have the patient coming to a freestanding wound center, a dressing change like this in my office costs about 100 bucks. If you, if, if you go into a, a, a hospital to have this done every day, it's, it's huge. So from a management point of view, it's actually very cost effective, even if you have changed the dressing every day, because it works and keeps the patients out of surgery and they heal. So we do them, usually the standard is twice a week. You can leave them on for up to a week, but I, I don't like to not see a wound for a whole week. It's scary to me. Um, this is a case we did back in the hospital. It's a woman with an IV drug abuser with an infected leg turned out to be necrotizing fasciitis, debrided in the, in the OR, put a wound vacuum on, and she got a wound vac, a hyperbaric treatment, debridements, finally got the wound looking well, skin grafted it, and out. I don't do this kind of stuff because I can't, I can't manage real sick patients or hospital patients, but I did get a patient last year from UCI who was transferred by ambulance to my office every day. Uh, Dr. Worth and Plastic Surgery Service sent her to me, and we treated her every day. She went back and forth by ambulance. Um, so in general, these are the kinds of patients that are referred to my office, and I get a lot of patients from all over Orange County and medical groups and, and places. Um, in general, I tell people if a wound hasn't healed over a month, if it's bigger than a couple inches or, or a centimeter deep, or if the patient's got a lot of other comorbidities, if they've had radiation to the area, if it's infected or, or miscolored, or if you can see tendon bone or the appendix in the wound that you should probably send them to somebody who knows about wounds. And that's kind of it. Buck stops here. Thanks for letting me yak at you for a while. <laughs>